Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Out of Spec Podcast. I am Francie, and today you're joining me in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Nax Show, all about convenience. And part of that, of course, is EV charging. So I'm here with Arcady, CEO and founder of FreeWire. Thanks for joining me today. I'm excited to dive into all the topics about the tech, the chargers that you offer, and the holistic approach that you take to support site hosts who want EV charging at their locations, but maybe the typical DC fast charging solutions aren't really right for them, and instead, more battery-focused solutions are an answer. Uh, thanks for having me, Francie. I really appreciate it, and let's dive into the story. Uh, so, hi, everyone. My name is Arcady, and I'm the CEO, and I founded FreeWire about 10 years ago in 2014. Uh, at that point, I was going to graduate school. I, I got my MBA from UC Berkeley. I'd always been passionate about anything automotive. In fact, if you go back to my childhood, uh, I immigrated to the country. And quickly after my family and I immigrated, my dad became a taxi driver and he drove a cab for 26 years. And so my relationship with him was somehow always centered around the car. It was on the weekends doing transmission swaps and engine swaps, uh, going to the shop and getting the tires rotated and oil changes. Some, there was always something to do with the car because we were putting so many miles on it that uh, I sort of developed this passion for automotive. And then I turned into a, a gearhead as I grew up. So when I got my license at 15 and a half years old, because you could do that back then, uh, I right away started wrenching on all my cars. And at one point I owned four or five at a time and uh, they were all projects, right? They were all projects. I had always wanted to work in the automotive industry, um, but I wasn't in Detroit, I was in California. And the, I also didn't necessarily want to work in combustion. So at that time in 2014, you saw the first few electric vehicles hit the road and Tesla had just launched their Model S. I don't even think I, I had seen one at the point, but it was announced at that point. There were a few Roadsters here and there. There were a few Nissan Leafs. And I said, this may be an opportunity for me to do something and take a risk. And I wanted to look for the hardest possible problem for me to 
try to solve. And it, it's funny, I looked at, well, should I build an electric vehicle? And, and that wasn't the direction I was going to go in. I actually thought I spotted a harder problem, which is utility infrastructure. And I said, we're gonna need fast charging and, and at some point ultra fast charging. Uh, and I don't think we have the power for that. I don't think our utility grid is ready for that. So started sort of ideating around that and building what we think is pretty compelling technology today, which I'm happy to tell you more about. Yes, great, thanks. I can see the natural progression from you know your dad's job as taxi driver to gearhead and then to electric vehicles. So you don't shy away from a challenge, which I appreciate. And I can see that with FreeWire as well, because as you said, utility can be the a huge part. You can get a site up, but then you can be waiting months for utility to catch up to allow you to get access to the grid to get a site running. So tell me, how does FreeWire jump that hurdle? And then we can go into the uh, equipment that you have here and tell us about the updates and the background and the big specs. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a, a really a, a real example of the problem that the industry is facing today. So. I sat down with one of my customers yesterday and they are a, a fleet customer. So they have a fleet of class eight electric trucks, which is also really cool to see that they're on the road these days. They went out to our utility, PG&E in California and said, I need new uh, power to this site, to their fleet site. And PG&E quoted them 2027 before they could get the power delivered to the site. And then once it was delivered, they could only use a third of that power between the hours of four to 9 p.m. So this fleet is going, uh, my trucks are coming in next month and, uh, and, and I, I don't know, I don't have any other choice. So that's fundamentally the problem we're solving. And yes, that's on a fleet example, that's a big, big site, uh, but we do it for retail customers all the time, gas stations and convenience stores, customers like Circle K and Phillips 66 and Chevron, where we're deploying high power charging on their sites, but we're not requiring them to do any, any utility upgrades. So we have low power feeding in, high power going out, and the battery acting as somewhat of a buffer. Very cool, and a very cool problem that you're attempting to solve. So let's go over into what Rewire has and take a look at some of the solutions. So one thing too is that you are selling the hardware, right, to site hosts, but then on the back end, what are the services you're providing? Yeah, I, I can describe all of that. So if you look at the company, now, I've been running the company for 10 years, so it's definitely evolved over time. If you look at the company probably 18 months ago, much of what we were doing was supplying this hardware, this battery-integrated ultra-fast charger, and we were supplying it to these retailers and to fleets. But over time, our, our scope sort of expanded. We grew as a company ourselves. So we're, today, we're about 230 people. 18 months ago, we were probably less than 100. And we started by offering um, first charging management software. So we have a platform called AMP that you can go into and do charging management, set pricing, set access control policies. You can actually create a load profile that you want the charger to follow. So you can say between the hours of 2 to 6 p.m., don't pull from the grid unless my battery falls below 40% state of charge. And you can do that hour by hour to create this really interesting customized load profile that then, of course, helps your utility infrastructure and your costs, your OPEX. So we started with that charging management software. We then started integrating that software with some of our retail customers' existing systems. So we integrated with payments, with customers like Parkland and Phillips 66, we're integrated with their payments rails. We integrated with the loyalty. So if you're a a Parkland customer, you can download their loyalty app called Journey and you can start and stop charging and pay for charging and earn loyalty points for charging right on that app. 
and all of that functionality is basically an API from FreeWire system. That's, we also then started offering all of the field support, the maintenance. We actually send our own technicians out on planes, getting out to customer sites every single day, same day service. We have spare parts facilities all over the country. And, 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 and that's what we have to do to make sure our customers are happy and that these charges are up and running. Now, we started doing work on the pre-sale side as well. So we spun up a group called FreeWire Solutions. So we're doing design, engineering, construction work. So some of, especially for a lot of our fleet customers, they want one company and one entity to come in and provide them everything. So we're out there doing site walks, assessing electrical infrastructure, and actually installing these units in the ground ourselves. And then we also spun up a business called Mobilize that uh, I'm happy to show you, we have a little demo here, but Mobilize allows you to find the best locations within thousands of sites where you want to deploy charging, where you're going to see the best utilization and throughput and traffic, where you have lots of incentives. And so we sort of now run the gamut of kind of start to finish turnkey services around hardware, around software, and around planning and forecasting and then supporting these systems in the ground. Very cool. So you've widened the scope a little bit, but it, it, it doesn't seem to be scope creeping really. You're trying to get that whole picture of solutions for your site hosts. And part of the big appeal of FreeWire is that there you're you're not depending on the utility because you have this battery energy storage system on site. So is that really more cost effective than the other options for DC fast charging? And if so, how? Can you explain that a little bit more and touch on the incentives and how they differ, uh, especially from the federal government? Yeah. yeah. So yes, it is more uh, cost effective. And, and people sometimes have a hard time understanding that because when you look at the price of the charger, it, it is more expensive than an equivalent charger from someone like an ABB or a Tritium. And, and that makes sense. You have a, a very large battery embedded inside that charger, so there is an, an extra cost element. But you're mitigating the costs that you would need to spend behind the charger. Transformers are not cheap, and they're not easy to get right now, actually. Switch gear, power distribution panels, meters, and all of the work you would need to do to interconnect all those distinct components the concrete pads you need for each of them, the bollards you need for each of them. So when you factor all that is, all that together, our cost is actually lower on a project compared to traditional chargers. The, that's on a gross basis. The interesting thing is there are also these really compelling incentives that were announced as part of the IRA that we qualify for that other systems don't. So your, your viewers might want to think about the in underneath the IRA, there's something called the EV charging tax credit. And so that's what a lot of companies are talking about. The EV charge tax credit is great. It's 30% off of your total system cost, but it's only applicable in low income or rural communities. And this is, by the way, as an aside, due to an 11th hour negotiation with Senator Manchin and the Biden administration, they basically said, it's only for rural and low income communities. But our system qualifies for something called a different tax credit called the energy storage tax credit, which is specifically designed for battery systems. And our system qualifies for that. And that energy storage tax credit is more lucrative. It's up to 50%, not 30%, but up to 50% tax credit. And it's available everywhere across the country, no matter what. No income limitation, no geographic limitation. So it's already more cost effective day one, and it's, and it's significantly more cost effective once you factor in these added incentives that exist for battery storage systems. Very interesting, and and I know how your mobilize 
uh, application can help site hosts really find out those, uh, you know, ideal sites, like you were saying, and that includes that incentive. So thanks for diving into that. Now let's get into the the nitty gritty technical details of your chargers. So you have not only the uh, fleet charging, but also the DC fast charging, right? So can you tell me a bit about them? Do you want to look at this one? There's that one over there. Does this one work? Good enough. I mean, they're all dummy units anyway. Yes, so exactly. Uh, can you tell me about what is the specs of the battery, the modules, the amperage, yeah. and everything? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of your viewers have used one, I hope have used one of our stations in the, in the field, and I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, so the system is a 200 kilowatt charger. So 200 kilowatts going out. We can do dual simultaneous charging, and we can split it 100 kilowatts on each side. So you can do 100 kilowatts on one handle, 100 on the other, or 200 on a single handle. And uh, the input power is about 27 kilowatts peak. Now, it never really hits 27 kilowatts. Generally speaking, what we're seeing is 22, 23 kilowatts is actually what it's drawing from the grid. Of that, 20 kilowatts are being used to charge the internal battery. So the way you should think about the system is 20 going in, 200 going out to the vehicle to charge that vehicle, and then the battery has to be sized appropriately so that you don't run out of charge in most cases. You can run out of charge, certainly, but you don't want to run out of charge in most cases. Uh, so the battery is a 160 kilowatt hour battery pack. And if a lot of your viewers have seen the units, you can sort of think about the bottom half of the whole system. That bottom half is, is all a battery. And, and that's 160 kilowatt hours, which is pretty uh, high energy density for a battery pack. If you want to compare that to, let's say, the Tesla Power Pack, the Tesla Power Pack is more like eight feet tall, four by four feet uh, on the ground. And that's about a, uh, anywhere from 180 to 230 kilowatt hours. We're 160 kilowatt hours, but we're three feet by three feet by three feet high. So it's a cube about this high. So it's, it's really high energy density on the pack itself. Now, how many vehicles can we charge in a day? And that the answer is honestly, it depends. It depends on when vehicles show up, how much state of charge they, they have when they show up, what state of charge they charge up to, what the charging curve of the vehicle looks like, so on a number of different factors. But generally speaking, we're seeing, and I can give you, and I'm happy to share with you guys, what we call our depletion curve. So we've modeled out over tens of thousands of different charging sessions how often we deplete. And at 10 charging sessions a day, there's an 8% risk of the battery inside the booster depleting. At 15 charging sessions a day, there's about a 15% risk of the battery depleting. And then at 20 charging sessions a day, there's about a 35% risk of the battery depleting. So generally speaking, you can get to about 15 or 20 charging sessions without the battery depleting in most scenarios. Now, if you're going back to back to back and there's no, no gap in between cars and every car is a, is a Hummer EV, it's a whole different story. But I'm giving you sort of the average based on empirical data. And that's important to consider, you know, use cases. And I know you have one up in Estes Park, Colorado, which, you know, isn't really high. I mean, it's high traffic if you're going to the park, but maybe, you know, a, an ideal location where you're not getting a ton of charging at one time. But there is something to consider with the battery depletion. Yeah. So um, I know that you've talked to Kyle a little bit about what 
if you, you know, you don't have to put in a whole nother charger, but what if you have another battery on site? So I know that you were talking about that coming in the future. Do you have more information to share about that specific aspect or the offerings right now in terms of another battery, but not necessarily another charger to help charge EVs? Yeah, yeah there's a, a sort of a whole kind of thesis around it in that we're not really just deploying charging infrastructure. We're really trying to deploy distributed energy systems. And so the Boost Charger Pro, which is coming out in at the end of Q1, is uh, the first unique feature is that you'll be able to DC link all the units that you have. So right now, if you have five Boost Chargers, they all operate as an independent battery pack. So it's five independent battery packs. With the Boost Charger Pro that's being launched, you can have a DC link in between each of those. So they effectively operate as one single large battery pack with one unit being the master unit. And that master unit basically uh, takes the voltage of each of the different battery packs, matches it. And then if you plug into and charge on any one of the units, the whole battery pack will drain together and the whole battery pack charges together as one single unit. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because first of all, it doesn't matter what charger you go to at that point because we can see that depending on where the charger is on the site, some get more utilization, some get less because more convenient parking spots, right? So at this point, with that, it doesn't matter anymore. Two, because all of the batteries are linked together, it becomes incredibly difficult to actually drain that whole battery together. So your depletion risk goes down a lot. And three, for the purposes of grid services and energy services, having one big battery is a lot more valuable than having many smaller batteries. So that's that's coming in the Boost Pro, and that's a big, big win. That DC link architecture then allows us to do what you just asked, Francie, which is launch a separate battery pack, standalone, that can be used to kind of expand the capacity of each of your Boost Chargers. So we're launching the Boost Charger Pro first with that DC link, and then quickly afterwards, we're going to launch a separate battery pack product. But honestly speaking, a lot of the functionality and kind of benefits you would get, you could just get by linking a, a bunch of units together. Really interesting. Can you tell me a bit also about where your research and development and engineering happens? Is it all in-house? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a bit more details about that. Who do you involve? And then also specifically cold temperature testing. You know, our audience has seen a lot of examples where this has been a problem and you have a kind of a good footprint in Canada where things can get yeah. a, go, a good bit colder. So tell me a bit about the research and development, your engineering, and then yeah, that testing process. Yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, all, all good questions. So first, yeah, we do a lot of the, most of the research and development we do in-house. So there are kind of three fundamental parts of the system. There's the battery pack, there's the power electronics, and then there's the software. So we have a power electronics team that sits in Longmont, Colorado. We just talked about this, and I'd love to get Kyle out there, by the way, to visit, and so they can show him the development of all these different and cool boards. They do uh, power conversion systems like DC to DC and AC to DC, and bi-directional AC to DC as well. So they do that development out there. We're working from the board level up. So we're actually specking our own uh, silicon carbide chips. We're writing firmware for these boards. We're testing them in heat chambers. That development is, is ground up done in-house, and we're super proud of our the power electronics specifically. Uh, on the Boost uh, Charger 200, we have our own proprietary 200 kilowatt sort of uh, DC to DC converters. On the Boost Pro, we're launching our next generation DC to DC converter. We have it, we have a call it code name Bronco uh, because it's being developed near Denver. 
Broncos, you get it, right? So uh, codename Bronco, and that uh, is gonna be able to provide a significantly higher efficiency, so we're 99.1% efficient on that system, and a little sneak preview, probably more power. I'm just gonna leave it at that. Um, battery pack development, we do in California. So we have a, uh, a R&D facility uh, in Newark, California, which is the town next to Fremont, which is where the Tesla factory is. And there we, we buy cells from third parties, right? In fact, we buy our cells from Smyrna, Tennessee. We talked about this a little bit earlier. We get those cells in house and then we build the pack ourselves. So we're put, combining all these cells, we're doing all the electrical systems and the mechanical systems, the thermal systems, and then the software development around the battery management system, all of that we do in house. And then we take this pack through kind of UL certification uh, and performance testing ourselves. And then uh, all of those get combined into the total system. Um, and then we write the software to be able to manage vehicle, inter vehicle interoperability and communications, uh, thermal management, a lot of thermal management, actually software, uh, how the battery management system interfaces with the power electronics, all that we write in-house. Uh, and so there's a lot of, of, of sort of vertical integration there. You were asking about cold. So if you look, I'll tell you a funny story. If you look at our spec sheet today, our spec sheet says negative 20 degrees Celsius, right? And we had a bunch of customers from Canada, Parkland being one, uh, and they came and they said, can't you do colder? And we go, yeah, we're pretty sure we can, but there's not a single lab in the US that can test this to those cold temperatures. When we were testing to negative 20 C, we had to put it into a thermal chamber, we had to get liquid nitrogen tanks, and we were refilling those tanks every six hours for 30 days. Every six hours we refill the tanks because we just had to get the thing cold enough, and the thing is such a large system and a large mass, we couldn't keep it cold. It would just heat up all the time. So we couldn't test to negative, less than negative 20, but we knew it could do it. So finally, we were able to work with one of our customers in Canada just recently, this was probably about uh, three months ago, uh, with a big utility in Quebec, and they have a, a huge thermal chamber, and we were able to test it down to negative 40 C, and it worked beautifully. No problems whatsoever, so super impressed. Cold's not the issue, yeah. What is the issue? Heat. Heat's the issue. Heat's always the issue, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so and tell me a little bit about how you do keep it cool when you're considering heat. Yeah, so in this system, we actually have two separate thermal management systems, and there's uh, forced air, uh, basically an HVAC system, for the battery, and then there's liquid cooling with pumps and, and all of the associated kind of hosing for all the power electronics. So, and effectively, the system operates as two separate zones. There's the bottom zone, which is where the battery is, and the top zone, which is where the, where the electronics are, and power electronics specifically, and they're completely thermally separated, thermally sealed, uh, and the bottom works with HVAC for air cooling the batteries. We also have uh, heating pads on each of the battery stacks to heat it up in cold weather. We don't really need to use that, but we do have it. And then the top is all sort of liquid cooling. Um, and it's complex. It, it is really complex to do all of that together into, in one box. Uh, but that's how we thermally manage it. Very interesting. Thanks for diving into those details. And then also, I'd love to know if you've considered the afterlife of these batteries and what would happen to them if perhaps, you know, they aren't viable in a charger anymore. Do you have any sort of ideas or partnerships or anything at all about battery recycling or reuse or repurposing? Yeah. So uh, I did talk to Kyle about this and, I'll, and 
The interesting thing is battery degradation typically happens when you charge the battery, and there's a lot less degradation if, when, you, when you're discharging. So we are charging our battery very slowly. It's a, it's a 160 kilowatt hour battery pack, and the charge rate is about 20 kilowatts, so it's about 0.15 C, that's the C rate. Whereas uh, it's very different with an electric vehicle. So you know, when you're driving your Tesla Model 3, let's call it an 80 kilowatt hour pack, you're charging at 250 kilowatts from a supercharger, that's 3C, so you're charging it very quickly, and that's gonna degrade that pack. Whereas we're charging our pack very slowly, and so uh, we can see significantly extended lifetimes of our pack relative to other applications for these battery cells. And we modeled originally when we were designing this thing that the pack would last over 10 years. In fact, we saw that it would hit 70% state of health after 11 years. Now, now we have three years of, of real empirical data to show does the degradation curve match sort of what we were modeling. And what we found is the degradation curve is actually a little bit better. So it's a little bit less steep, so to speak. So we're very confident it'll last more than 10 years. Uh, and we've been able to show that data to some of our customers and they feel confident too. Um, to the battery recycling, do you have like a full, I, did you speak to this exactly, but like, you know, if they are de degraded after those 10 years, have you thought about what comes next? And I know this is like, you know, maybe a far ways off, but have you considered the life cycle? Yeah, I, I mean, I've actually thought a lot about this. So uh, believe it or not, when I first founded Freewire in 2014 through 2018, we were exclusively using Second Life batteries in our products. And at one point, right around that 2017, 2018 timeframe, we had the largest deployment of Second Life batteries in the world. In fact, some of the Second Life batteries that we put out there in products are still with customers today. So I was thinking about this way before um, this became a topic. And at that point, for me, it was a business decision because I was able to get these Second Life batteries for a very low cost compared to new batteries. Now, what happened is that new battery prices kept dropping and that delta uh, became smaller and it didn't really make sense to use Second Life anymore when you knew they had a reduced lifespan. Now, how do we think about these systems kind of on a go-forward basis? I am not very bullish on the Second Life business model because of what I just said. New batteries are just, are, are, are so, are inex they're not cheap, but the prices have come down significantly and they're still coming down. And I don't think that there is a model to make Second Life work knowing that, let's say they have a five-year lifespan, the biggest cost is gonna be removing them and replacing them. And I don't want to, have my, to bear that cost, I don't want my customers to bear that cost. What I'm more encouraged about with batteries is that, think about it relative to a hydrocarbon, you know, some gas today. When you pull that hydrocarbon out of the ground, or what I like to call dinosaur oil, right, dinosaur fuel, you pull it out of the ground, you burn it, it's gone forever, right? That hydrocarbon is gone, you burned it. With batteries, the interesting part is, yes, you're pulling heavy metals out of the ground, cobalt, lithium, manganese, and so forth, but they can be infinitely reused. So what I am super bullish about is stuff that Redwood Materials is doing, as an example. They're able to basically take the battery and extract all of these precious metals and use them in the production of new batteries, and there is, and there is no impact to the performance of that battery. It will be like a, like a brand new battery all over again, and you can do that infinitely. So that's what I think we need to scale up as, a, as an industry is like Second Life could have some applications from a project basis, but I think large scale, it's gonna be 
extracting the metals and using them in the production of new cells. Yeah, I've, I've been really interested in Second Life of batteries and recycling, and I know that I've seen really cool um, entrepreneurs that are taking Second Life batteries and helping them like power homes like overseas, and that is definitely an option when we still have that energy left, but the recycling, like you said, is such a great option, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, this closed loop circle for EVs, EV batteries, and the supply chain um, isn't really closed loop. So more and more effort to close it, I think is really interesting. Redwood is uh, a great effort. And then we just recently did a podcast on nanotech um, and BASF, B-A-S-F, uh, combining forces. So interesting to know that you're thinking about that. And um, I'd love to ask, because I have to. So Hyundai announced today that they're going next. Just another automaker, you know, just going to next in the future, of course, this is a couple years in advance, and I see here, you know, you have your CCS and the Chatamo. So what is FreeWire's plans for next? Yeah. So um, next time Kyle comes and visits the facility, I'll show him, we have NACs running the facility. The issue is not the technology or the cable or the coupler. The technology is easy. We, we, get, we have it working. It's, we can plug it into a Tesla and it's charging cars just fine. It's the supply chain around it. So we, we worked with Tesla, they put us in touch with the supplier that they currently use for their own cables. We're working with them on a supply agreement. It'll, they still not have got, they haven't gotten that cable you all certified yet is another part of the problem. So we're negotiating supply agreement, they're simultaneously working on you all certification of that cable, and then we can bring that in and insert it into our manufacturing process, which means documentation on our side, getting it into our factory and, and getting it on the line. You know, you're still looking at probably, they say they're gonna get UL certification by the end of the year. I don't really believe it. I think you're probably looking at two or three Q before you can, you'll see this uh, out in the field widespread because of some of those kind of delays. Right, so a bit out of your own hands yeah. there of yeah. waiting for that. Okay, great. And then I'd love to dive into this technology that you have to support your site host here, Mobilize, right? Yeah. So you just recently acquired this company? Yeah, it was about a year and a half ago. Okay. But and what is the benefit here? I'm a site host, and how can you help me decide when and where to put in a free wire charger? Yeah, great. So, I mean, this is the biggest issue in the space is that um, these retailers have so many sites, and they don't have the wherewithal or the time to be able to deploy charging on every single one today. They need to know where to, tar where to target right away, and they need to have data to figure out utilization. They need to know where the incentives are, and so on and so forth. So let's load up an example brand. Um, let's look at Chevron as an example. Chevron will have, it'll pop up in a second, probably six or 8,000 sites across the country. And you can see all of these blue dots represent all the Chevron locations. All Chevron has to do is send us their addresses, right? We load that into the system. We start looking, okay, what states do we want to target? Let's just for a second assume we want to target California, obviously. So we'll load up all the Chevron sites in California, and you're going to see a bunch of data pop up right away behind their sites. These green lines, which sort of fade into darker blue, as you get closer to the cities, this is traffic data. So I know how many vehicles are driving over these highways and thoroughfares and roads every single day. I can also see the location of all existing charging infrastructure. So these are Tesla superchargers and EA stations and EVgo stations. I can see where they are. I have data on their pricing. I have utilization data from them. I know how many chargers are out there. So that's helping inform my model. And I also have incentive data built in. So I can load up 
all of the NEVI corridors. These purple lines are all the NEVI locate corridors across the country and specifically in California. So let's say Chevron says, I want to chase incentives and I want to specifically focus on NEVI sites. So can you click NEVI up there, that button for me? That down selected and shows you just all the sites that qualify for NEVI, right? Mm -hmm. And, but let's forget about NEVI for a second. Let's say, let's not chase incentives. Let's go and just look for good sites. So unclick that, right? I'm gonna turn off my NEVI corridors and now click high traffic and then click high EV. So now you've found the sites that have the highest traffic near them and the highest EV penetration. And now you know that, hey, these sites are probably gonna be pretty good. And I can start down selecting into them and saying, okay, this is Mountain View, a Chevron site that has 250,000 vehicles drive by every single day. My median income is pretty high. It's 140,000 there. My EV adoption is 5.3%. I'm gonna down, down click and, and do some deeper analysis on some of these sites. So let's now go and do what we call a premium analysis on one of these Chevron sites, right? So this is a Chevron in Mountain View. And a few things I can tell right away is I have a site score for it. And on a number of different factors, EV adoption, whether it's charging desert or not, I think you know what that means. Garage orphans, whether they have homes or they're in apartment buildings, road trippers, but behind that score is just a bunch of data. So here's an example of some of the data that we saw earlier, traffic, existing EV charging stations, some of these chargers I can actually see right away what they're pricing. So this is an EA site, 40 cents per kilowatt hour, there are three chargers there. But this is my green site right there. I can go into the satellite data and figure out where do I wanna place my charger. I can also look at my visitor origins. So this is really powerful data. This actually shows you where your drivers are coming from. And we use cell phone records to figure this out. So I know that to this Mountain View site, folks are coming sort of from San Jose and San Francisco and a bunch of folks are driving in between. That's important because it does, what doesn't matter is what your EV adoption is in your zip code. What really matters is what's the EV adoption in the zip code where your customers are coming from and what charging infrastructure do they have available to them along their path of travel. So you need to sort of dig one level deeper behind the just basic EV adoption data on the zip code level. I also need to know when they arrive. So I can see that on this site, we have people arrive pretty bunched up every single day, kind of middle of the day, right? And this is gonna tell me, do I need a, a lot of CapEx because they're all bunched up arrivals? Or do I need less CapEx or fewer charges because they're more spread out, right? And then I can go into kind of deeper level data like interesting stuff like median income the percent of renter-occupied households, because as you know, renters typically don't have home charging, so this helps inform my model. How many, how many households are multi-vehicle households? How, what percent commute by vehicle versus public transportation, right? And all of that kind of feeds into this site score that we give it. Now, that's important, but the most important thing for the franchisee and the retailers that's installing this thing is, how much am I gonna make, right? And so this is a summary, but I'll actually go a little step further here and show you this is our cash flow forecasting tool. And it does a couple different things that are, are pretty cool. At the end, it spits out your cash flows and how much money uh, we think you'll make on charging. But it does that with a couple different ways. One, you give it your utility data. So we have a utility bill already loaded here. 
but I can add a new utility bill. You can upload a, a PDF as an example, and it'll actually read your utility bill, figure out what rate tariff you're under, It'll look at your existing load profile, so it knows when you're turning on your HVAC or when your uh, your pumps are turning on, and it'll smartly try to hide the EV charging load that we expect within the sort of curve that you already have. Interesting. And then it it forecasts out EV charging utilization over the next 10 years on five-minute intervals. So every five minutes, it's forecasting out. How many, how many charging sessions it thinks your site will see. Hmm. And it then recommends the utility rate tariff that you should be under, right? Mm -hmm. Because you may, you may have to switch utility rate tariffs because now EV charging becomes a big part of your business and you're, using, you're a big consumer of electrons. So in this case, it says, I should be on the B10 TOU NEM2 rate tariff if I charge 60 cents a kilowatt hour and I see seven charging sessions a day, I'm gonna make 1800 bucks a month. That's my profit on the system. Wow, and a lot of really interesting data going into this model. And yeah. I can see how this is extremely valuable to your site host to be able to really get customized information instead of just best guests. Yeah. Hmm. Very cool. So have you found that your site hosts really use this and this is This has become one of our most important kind of products. Mm -hmm. I bet. Um, because what we found is that there's a, the combination of the things that we do, which is mitigating utility infrastructure, uh, eliminating utility upgrades on sites, lowering capex. We don't, when we go to a customer, we're not really competing with other charging companies that go to that site. We're kind of expanding the window of sites. We're going to customers that would have otherwise never considered charging because they either didn't want to deal with the utility upgrades or they didn't know they could make money. And so when we go to a site, we go in with confidence saying we can install this quickly. It's going to be lower cost and you're going to make money. And I think the benefit that we're giving to consumers, to drivers, is that you're going to find charging in more locations because of the work that we do than if we had just relied on, you know, the traditional charge point operators to, to, to put, you know, a 10 charger sites up, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So. You have this more and more, like we said, kind of holistic approach growing for your business model where you can really support site hosts that want to integrate free wire and chargers into their offerings. And as of late, what have been your biggest challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest challenge is a sort of start and stop in the industry where we had this announcement of this big funding package, Nevi, we looked at it. Not a single dollar of Nevi has been allocated yet, has been given out to the market yet. So I think a lot of our customers see this lucrative uh, package, incentive package, and have said, oh, I'll just wait until Nevi's available. And it, the states keep delaying and delaying and delaying. And that's been really frustrating. I know some of your clients have probably talked to you about that as well. Um, the other frustrating thing that, that I don't put blame on anybody else, I put blame squarely on ourselves, is reliability has to get better, right? And we need to get to a point where the industry is three nines of reliability and the industry is just not there yet. And there are hundreds of different reasons for it, right? Every single day we're facing interoperability issues with cars, right? Uh, automotive OEMs come out with a new vehicle and all of a sudden the, the communication protocol changes slightly. And I know Kyle has been a big, big advocate of standardization, standardization. It's not there yet. Standardization is not there. We're dealing with those issues every single day. The suppliers for some of this equipment are still immature, frankly. I mean, we saw a few years ago issues with a certain 
uh, cable supplier where the handle would cause charging issues. As, and I think you know all about it, your viewers know all about it. I mean, and, and that's not, that's just the one we know about. I'm, trust me, I'm in this industry. I see dozens more that your viewers don't know about and, and it's frustrating. And we are part of the problem as well because we need to do more testing. We need to uh, go out there and spend a lot of time on engineering R&D. And, and, and I promise you we are trying, we are all trying, but there's still a little bit of um, frustration going around, right? Yeah. yeah, there's always going to be challenges and we're always interested in how those are being confronted because they're not going to go away. There's a lot of technical aspects to be considered. There's a lot of fragmentation where there's different efforts from different you know, parts of the industry where we could get a little bit more united. But we wait a little bit on that. Okay, so those are the challenges kind of, yeah. and you've given us a great overview. What keeps you motivated on the day-to-day, -day, Arcady? Yeah, I mean, well, frankly, I've been driving electric for 10 years. Actually, more like 11, almost 12 years now. So I, I, I just love it. I mean, it is a better experience. I want everyone to drive electric. I want everyone to experience it. I love my team, right? I built it up into 230 people that have bought into the vision when we were a small company. Uh, I think we're doing something really exciting. I think we are innovating in an innovative industry, right? So we're on the sort of bleeding edge of innovation in an industry that's still innovating itself, which I think is always fun and always interesting. Uh, and I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, which is so great. It is, and, and by light at the end of the tunnel, I don't mean the end. I mean, it's, EV adoption is there. 25% of new vehicles sold in California last quarter were electric. 7% of new vehicles sold across the U.S. last quarter were electric. I, I mean, you're seeing this wave of electrification happening. And so seeing, knowing that the light is at the end of the tunnel is, has been really motivating compared to, Francie, frankly, 2014 through 2018, 2019, when it was still hit or miss as to whether this would be a thing or not. Thanks. Yeah, it's been really cool to dive into FreeWire. And thank you for joining me today on the Out of Spec podcast, and we'll hope to see you again soon. Anytime. Thank you so much.